Let's have our prayer for guidance here this morning. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you have for us today. The scripture is from Exodus 12, 1 through 14. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the tenth of this month they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in proportion to to the number of people who eat it. Your lamb, your lamb shall be without blemish, a year old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it from the keep it until the fourteenth day of the month. Then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at midnight. They they should take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the lamb that same night. They shall eat it roasted. Over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it over the fire and it's with its head, legs, and inner organs. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it hurriedly. It is the Passover of the Lord. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down first every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals. On, the, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a day of remembrance for you. You shall, be, you shall celebrate it as a festival of the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Danny. We're in a series on redemption, and what Danny just read and what you'll read about, especially in that first uh, half of the book of Exodus, is about God redeeming his people, bringing them out of slavery uh, in Egypt. And uh, that story is not only one that has meaning for the Jewish people, it has meaning for us as Christians. It has meaning for us because it reminds us of, of the great power of God, of God's love for his people. After 400 years in slavery, uh, the people of Israel, God heard their prayers. He saw their suffering, and he brought them out by his power. It's very interesting as you read Exodus that, uh, and in everything that goes after that and what we're supposed to remember uh, in that Passover meal, it's all centered on what God did. It doesn't talk about what Moses did. It doesn't talk about what any of the people did, but it talks about what God did for them. And so our focus is on God in our praise. Very often we become focused on what we are doing you know what a, you know what a great sunday school teacher we have what a great uh pedal pushers group with the landscape and everything we 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 will praise and and that's perfectly fine but ultimately all of our praises have to be lifted up to god and we give thanks for each other and those who serve in the church and those who like moses uh showed such faith 
and reliance on God that he was an example to his people as he led them out of, of Israel. So we're going to look a little bit in, at this story in, uh, in Exodus and uh, uh, three different passages. The passage that you just heard is the middle passage. It's where the Passover meal is established. And really it's established as a plan for escape for the people. This is how you're going to uh, prepare your meal the night before we leave. And you're going to be, you're going to have your sandals on and you're going, you're going to have your travel bags ready. And you're going to eat food that can be prepared quickly because we got to get out of here. Because Pharaoh may change his mind. And Pharaoh does change his mind and he sends his soldiers after, uh, the, uh, the Hebrews or the Israelites, uh, to bring them back. Now why was that? Because they were slaves. They were a commodity. Uh, also if, uh, they were to leave Egypt, Egypt had enemies around them. There was the fear that perhaps they would go off and fight with the enemies in revenge against Egypt. And so he had many practical reasons to want to bring these people back in. And so uh, the Passover is about a people preparing to leave very quickly and to get out of Egypt. Uh, and ultimately that chase by the army and through the Red Sea that leads to the salvation of the people and the destruction of the army. Uh, most of us are familiar with that story. But I was thinking uh, this week as I was looking at this, I thought maybe we need to go back and see why it is that the uh, Hebrews are slaves in Egypt to begin with. And if you go back to the very first chapter of Exodus, you have the story about how um, uh, we all know the story of Joseph, how he, uh, uh, his brothers sold him into slavery into Egypt. And uh, he goes there, he, he is, uh, becomes a servant, a slave of a, of a rich man, Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife makes advances on him, and he resists them. However, uh, she accuses him, and he ends up in prison. While he's in prison, he interprets some dreams. And then later on, Pharaoh is having some dreams, and somebody who was in prison with, with Joseph says, hey, I remember this guy, he was really good at interpreting dreams. And Pharaoh asks him to, 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 to find this man and bring him back in. Joseph interprets the dreams. Uh, they come, uh, his, his predictions, his prophecies come true. Pharaoh raises him up to where he becomes eventually the second most powerful man in Egypt. Imagine that. Somebody who was a slave, who was imprisoned, somebody who's an alien, not, not an Egyptian, becomes the second most powerful man. God raised Joseph up for a purpose. And then when there's a famine in the land, Joseph's family comes down into Egypt, not even knowing that he is alive. And uh, they end up being invited to stay in Egypt. And so when the famine hits uh, into Egypt also, they are there and food has been stored up at Joseph's directions so that the people of Egypt can survive. Now here's an interesting thing about all that. Well, it sounds great that Pharaoh had stored up all this food Pharaoh also took advantage of that. When the people came for the food, they exchanged their freedom for the food. And many in Egypt became slaves. And eventually, it tells us in Exodus 1, that the people of Israel also became slaves. The, uh, starts out, verse 1, it tells us the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, that is the father of Joseph, each with his family, Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulon and Benjamin and so forth. Uh, it says Joseph was already in Egypt. And the descendants of Jacob numbered 70. So when Joseph's family came down, there were 70 of them. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. So that original generation died. 
But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing. He didn't know Joseph. He didn't remember Joseph. Uh, He had no appreciation for what Joseph had done for Egypt. A new king, a new pharaoh, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramesses and store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked the Israelites ruthlessly. Two times it says ruthlessly. It was a terrible life and a terrible existence. And so uh, as, as a period of time comes when the Israelites, their, uh, their slavery becomes too much to bear, God looks down upon them and he sends a deliverer, Moses, to come. He's going to redeem his people, to bring them back out of that slavery and to cross the Red Sea. Now that is an image of us, of our deliverance from the slavery of sin and death. That Jesus Christ has come. He is the blood of the Lamb. The blood that is over you in the Passover. uh, Passing over means that the angel of death passed over the homes of the Israelites and took only the firstborn males of the Egyptians. And they had put blood, the blood of, of a lamb. Slain, they were slaying lambs, putting the blood over the lintels of the doors. And that's what Jesus Christ did for us with his blood. The penalties of, of uh, our slavery and sin and of, of death are no more for us. We will live eternally. We have eternal life because of Jesus. But there's something else that happens. The escape out of Egypt, uh, it would be a wonderful thing if the Israelites had simply crossed over through the Red Sea, uh, walked into the promised land, and all was good. But the Old Testament and the New Testament, to some extent, is really a story of man's rebellion, as well as our redemption. We are rebellious in our hearts. It didn't take long after the creation, after the fall of Adam and Eve, before you get to the generation of Noah, when God looks down upon the earth and he says that every inclination of the hearts of man was evil. There was no good in them. John Wesley uh, believed uh, uh, in original sin to the point that he said that there is nothing that we can do that is good apart from God's grace. Nothing. Everything we do is stained with evil intention. And when you think about it for a moment, many times the the things that we say, oh, what a good thing that was for you to do. Examine your heart a little bit. Was there a little bit of selfish intent in what you did? And a little bitterness when you weren't recognized for what you did? Uh, People who give uh, uh, generous donations to colleges and universities in the news recently sometimes had motives beyond just being generous. There was one uh, celebrity here recently, a sports uh, phenomenon, a sports legend, who bragged uh, online on social media that his daughter had just been accepted to USC and that she had gotten in on her own merit. And he was kind of saying, see, my daughter got in on her, her own merit. Until somebody dug up that about five years ago, he had given, uh, I think it was $7 million 
to the university. You see, if we go deep enough, almost always, everything that we do has some motive. It's, it's a motive that people will love us more. I know that I wash dishes and I do a lot of stuff around the house, not just because I'm a good husband, but because I want my wife to love me. And I want to, if we get into an argument, I'll be able to say, I wash the dishes, you know. I'm storing that stuff up. I mean, if we really get in there, the best among us really aren't that good. We may have the appearance of good. Jesus said the word hypocrites a lot, meaning, you know, you look good on the outside. You're like uh, your fresh painted tombs. Look really good on the outside, but on the inside, a lot of dead bones. A lot of dead men's bones inside to you. So I hate to bring you down today, but we're not as good as we think we are. And we deceive ourselves into thinking that. And so here, here's proof of that. After they cross over the Red Sea, they've been out uh, uh, in the desert for about two and a half months. And they're on this trip. And they're having a hard time finding, um, finding water. And they go out... Let me see if I can find that. Two, three, four, five. Yes, here. Chapter 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. So actually it wasn't two and a half months. It was the 15th day of the second month. So a month and a half. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Now, they have just been brought out of 400 years of slavery. They crossed through the Red Sea. Uh, all, these, all these plagues were brought upon Egypt to, to gain them that release. God's power had been among them. And now, you know, about 45 days later, they're grumbling. And here's what they said. They said to Moses and Aaron, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt... We would, it would have been better for us if we had just died back in Egypt. There, when we were in, in Egypt, we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Within 45 days, these people who had been delivered out of slavery were grumbling. Does that remind you of anybody? You ever been in a grumbling church? Remember the little video last week, if you saw the video, the guy talked about the, you, you know a grumbling church when you come into it? And it's like there are dead rats in the thin walls. You, you just know it. It's, it's, it's really quite incredible to read through the Old Testament, especially how often Israel is saved by God, but then turns around and rebels against God. And in fact, later on in all of this, they're going to actually create a golden calf. They're going to actually begin to worship the gods of Egypt, who they were probably more accustomed to than the God of Jacob and Abraham, because they had been enculturated into, into uh, that Egypt society for so long that those gods seemed more natural to them. Does that remind you of anybody? Are we sometimes more comfortable with the gods of our own culture than we are with the God of the Bible? And it tells us then that God delivers them again. He redeems them over and over. He provides manna and quail uh, for them to eat, to take care of them. Every time that people are grumbling, God responds and takes care of them. And that is really our story too. God takes care of us when we don't deserve it. He redeems us when we don't deserve it. 
At just the right time, the scripture says he sent his son to die for us when we didn't deserve it. That is the God who we love and serve. But we can only know that God's redemption if we also understand how far away we are from him and how our hearts are inclined towards evil and how much we need God that we can't do it ourselves. You know, when John Wesley was preaching back in the, in the 1700s, in the 18th century, uh, believe it or not, society had come around to the part where within the Anglican churches it was not fashionable to talk about sin. Can you believe that? Churches where people didn't want to talk about sin and preachers didn't want to preach about sin. And that's what John Wesley was so effective was that he said, it's only good news if you know the bad news. And the people aren't responding to the good news because we're not telling them the bad news. And the bad news is that our hearts are inclined to sin. There's nothing we do that isn't tainted by that sin. And the only way past that is the blood of Jesus Christ. That the penalty of sin may pass over us. That's why, you know, uh, teaching the baptism class yesterday was great for me. Because it reminded me of what baptism really means. When we're baptized uh, into Jesus Christ, we are buried with him in Christ, it tells us in Romans, and we are raised to new life. It is a death and it's a resurrection. It's a death to sin and a resurrection to new life. That's what God offers us. But we continually turn away from God, and and, and the scriptures tell us that we're going to always, the inclination of, of of our hearts is to try to take everything back to ourselves. That's the original sin. Adam and Eve in the garden, the serpent says, well, you know what? Did he really say you shouldn't eat of it? And you know what? I think if you eat it, you'll be just like him. That's why he doesn't want you to eat it. You'll be God's too. And, and that's really what society today, that's what people today, we want to be in control. We want to save the earth without a God. We want to save our lives. We want to enrich our lives. We want to be happy, all these things without God. And yet, I don't meet anybody in this world who claims that they are truly happy apart from God. And I mean that. These celebrities, our heroes, get deep into their lives. Read the stories about them. They aren't happy. They aren't satisfied. I mean, Bryce Harper or, uh, or, or, or Trout, who just got the most money ever for a baseball player, they're making hundreds of millions of dollars to play a game. And yet, I look at their lives and I look at them, I don't see any more happiness there than what I have in my own. It's a sad and tragic thing that we just never learn. Uh, This past week, and I'm going to bring this up, I haven't talked about this a lot, but a statement went out from a a group of folks in the United Methodist Church, the Virginia United Methodist Church. And I was deeply disturbed by it for, uh, for a couple reasons. One was that it really represented a terrible interpretation of Scripture, Genesis 1. And I say this again, reminding you that this isn't about hate. It's not about discrimination. It's not about saying that that persons of different uh, sexual orientations cannot enter into this sanctuary, cannot seek God's grace and his forgiveness with us for all of our sins and all of our inclinations to evil and all too. We come together in that way. But it was... This twisting of the scripture, it says, we affirm the diversity of sexual orientations. This is signed by 
many pastors, leaders in our, in our conference. We affirm the diversity of sexual orientations and gender expressions that God has created and called good. Genesis 1, 26 to 31. Well, I went back and I read Genesis. Maybe I'd missed something there, but it said uh, man created uh, humans, male and female. He created them and he told them to be fruitful and to multiply. And I'm looking, where is the, where is the diversity here of gender expressions and sexual orientations? And I couldn't figure out. Do you know that they went back a little bit later, a couple days later, and they changed that? They took that out. And they said, Genesis 1.26 tells us that we are all created in the image of God. That I agree with. Absolutely. But that's very different from saying that God created and called good every sexual orientation and gender expression. You see, that was a corruption of Scripture. And that offended me. And apparently somebody caught it and said, you know what? But people were signing their name off. They weren't studying. They weren't looking at that. It could have said that somewhere else in the Bible. But, it, but, but what matters, it, it didn't say it there. And as far as I know, it doesn't say it anywhere else. But, they, but the whole thing was pulled, they were pulling scriptures out to say things that they didn't say. And then they had to go back and change things because they were so blatantly false that people were saying, I can't sign this. But many people did sign it without really thinking about it. But the thing that then really disturbed me is what is called antinomianism, anti-law, anti-rules, a spirit of rebellion. That in there, people who are on the board of ordained ministry with me, people who are leaders of the board of ordained ministry said, uh, uh, agreed to ignore the discipline when it came to what the discipline says about gay marriage, about gay clergy. That they would ignore it. And they went through specific ways that they would do that. Now I'm here saying that when I'm on the board, I'm told I have to follow all these rules. But all of a sudden a group of people are signing a piece of paper and saying the rules aren't for us. Now again, for me this isn't about human sexuality It's about our covenant together to follow a set of rules that we create together. We come together, general conference, every four years, and every four years we have the opportunity to change those rules. But they just said, now, we don't have to do it. And so I'm confused. I'm going to talk to the district superintendent. I'm going to say, I need to know which rules I have to follow and which rules are optional because apparently we can just sign a piece of paper and say the rules aren't for us. Bring this up because... This is the state where our church is. It's why, and I'm afraid I almost brought a couple of video clips of pastors in big churches saying, we need to separate the church. But that's where we're at. Adam Hamilton, uh, the pastor of the largest United Methodist Church in America, has called for a separation of the denomination. For us to just say, we can't get along, we can't agree, and let's separate. For me, again, this is about hate. Uh, and I realize I've just said that my heart is inclined to evil. So I can't deny that I, I haven't grown up with prejudices, that there aren't parts of me that, that don't like certain people. I'll confess that before everybody. But as God is my witness, I will beg for God to, that I would have only love in my heart for everybody, no matter what their actions are in this life, that I can find a place for love for them, even when I disagree with them. 
But this has disturbed me this week, this call to disobedience. And when we have our annual conference in June and, and, and a lot of these folks are there, it's going to be a rough scene. I thank God that the mission trip for the youth is leaving on the last day of the conference and I can have an excuse to leave on that last day. Uh, it's going to be not a pleasant place. And everybody you know, who's going has been talking about that. Not going to be a pleasant experience. When we can't say the word sin anymore, we're not, we're not willing to face our sin. When We're not willing to say that there are things that cross over the line of God's will and those things are sin then we've come to a very dangerous place in life. And we've been there before. The late 1800s into the early 1900s, there was a progressive movement within the church, and it essentially said, uh, and you may just through secular history, you'll study about this, there was a sense that humanity was heading because of scientific advancements, uh, because of our own wisdom, we were heading toward a golden age. And unfortunately, World War I happened and kind of blew that dream away. But that's why you had the League of Nations. That was a plan for that before that war broke out because the whole world, we were going to be one because people thought that we could do it without God. Well, that's the little thing I'm going to share with you on that, that a little witness. Boy, time flies. I know it flies for you. You just can't get enough. Um, that I had a, uh, a friend of mine, a close friend of mine, a pastor, uh, call uh, yesterday, and he was at a, uh, at a worship service in his district, and one of our staff from the uh, district in Richmond, the conference headquarters, came, and he said, and uh, she has a great voice, and she was singing in the worship service a solo, softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me, seeing the portals, he's waiting and watching watching for you and for me. And then she sang this, Come home, come home. Ye who are beloved, come home. You know what the words are. Ye who are sinners, come home. Ye who are weary, come home. Right, it changes in the verses. It changes in the verses. But the beloved is a word that we're using in place of sinners because we don't want to say to people that you're a sinner and, we, and, and, and so we're, we're changing that over to beloved. That those changeovers in language are reflecting a general move away from the scriptures. And that overwhelming theme of scripture that says that God is our redeemer and he redeems us from our sin. And so I'm sharing with you in this season of Lent when we are supposed to reflect upon our sin, reflect upon what has separated us from God and, and celebrate that Jesus Christ has come to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross. That there's still a truth in Scripture that we can adhere to and abide by. And as the world around us changes and evolves and tries to come up with other ways and other paths to joy and to happiness and fulfillment, that we can stand on the Word of God. And amen. Before we sing, uh, let's pray for just a moment. Holy Father, forgive us uh, for our wayward ways. Forgive us for how quick we are when we exit the building on Sunday mornings to embrace the culture around us. 
Forgive us, Father, for not having the faith to believe that in your Son, Jesus Christ, we can find uh, a joy that exceeds our expectations, a joy that overflows in our lives. Forgive us, Father, for those times when we cannot find a way to love despite our differences. Father, forgive us when we trust in our own wisdom, when we call what is good evil and what is evil good. Show us your way, Father, through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. She was right on the lyrics. It says, earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner, come home. And I, I put that in a different place, but the word sinner was what was, was changed there. Um, just uh, one little thing to read. I know we're running a bit over, and don't forget if you're involved with the Monday Thursday service um, uh, about the meeting in the fellowship hall. Uh, this is by Dietrich Bonhoeffer from his classic work, The Cost of Discipleship, which every seminary student reads. But he says, uh, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. May we always preach the grace of God in and through Jesus Christ. Go in his peace and amen.